Chapter Three of Things Seen in Florence by Elizabeth Grierson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. By Church and Palace, one. The north end of the Ponte Vecchio leads directly to a street bearing the name of the Por Santa Maria, and if we follow this for a short distance and then turn to the right along the Via Vaccareccia, we find ourselves in the Piazza della Signoria which from the municipal point of view has always been the heart of the city there are few public squares in the whole world perhaps excepting of course the acropolis of athens or the capitolium of rome where a more striking contrast can be had between the memories of the past which the surrounding buildings call up and the gay careless tide of present-day life which is constantly surging across its wide pavement facing us as we enter the square from the via vaccareccia stands the massive palazzo vecchio which has been well described as one of the most resolute and independent buildings in the world rising to the height of four stories and built of enormous blocks of stone the sense of grim overwhelming strength is relieved by the beautiful tower the highest in the city which rises above it and which is finished by a crown of stone in which hangs an ancient bell the vacca or cow beloved by the people of florence perchance in olden days this affection was mingled with dread for it seldom rang except as a call to arms or when some danger threatened the city and a council of citizens was hastily summoned la vacca mugia the cow lows they cried to one another as they seized their armour and hurried to respond to its call in front of the palace stand some striking statues the hercules and cacus of bandinelli fashioned by that sculptor out of a block of marble which was chosen by michelangelo in the quarries of carrara but was never used by him a copy of the famous marzocco or lion of donatello and a copy of david by michelangelo the originals of the two last-mentioned statues have been deemed too precious to be exposed to the accidents which might befall them in a public square and have been removed to the bargello and the accademia respectively the term marzocco is a puzzle to most people it is the name given to the symbol of the protector of florence and carries us back to the days of the romans when the city was supposed to be under the protection of mars the god of war as we have seen a statue of this god stood near the ponte vecchio but it was washed away by a flood thereafter a lion symbolic of strength and majesty was substituted for the figure of the god and the animal was represented as seated and guarding the arms of the city the marzocco wearing an enamel crown set in gold was placed in front of the palazzo vecchio as a symbol visible to all of the strength and power of the florentine republic and as such was kissed by prisoners of war in token of submission in medieval days a ringhiera or platform was built in front of the palace for the use of the signoria who sat in state upon it to watch the festas held in the square beneath or to hear the proclamations which they desired to issue read by their officers to the attendant citizens it was from this platform which was demolished in eighteen twelve that the fathers of the city watched the martyrdom of savonarola and his two companions on the twenty third of may fourteen ninety eight and it was in the grim old palace behind 
that the great preacher and his two friends spent their last night on earth and partook of their last communion before they were led out to die Today the ringiera is replaced by a flight of stone steps and as we mount them and take our seats alongside some of the beggars and loafers who alas are unhappily so common in italy on the broad stone ledge which runs around the palace it is difficult to picture to ourselves the dire happenings of these olden times so very different are the scenes on which we are looking down true there is a loggia de lanzi at right angles to us across the corner of the square forming part of the uffizi palace recalling to our minds the turbulent age when even the medici did not feel themselves safe without their own private bodyguard of swiss lancers but now it is filled with statuary and forms a shaded refuge from the noonday sun for tired workmen who take their siesta here it also serves as a convenient place where tourists can read or write their letters for the general post office is just round the corner and the ubiquitous seller of picture postcards is never far off while the little street arabs make of it a special playground chasing each other with childish unconcern round the base of the perseus of cellini the judith and holofernes of donatello and the rape of the sabines of gianda bologna in the morning especially the whole square is full of life and movement servants with baskets on their arms are hurrying across it on their way to market priests and nuns are returning from mass and the quaintness and variety of their distinctive habits add to the interest of the scene here we see the ordinary black soutane and shovel hat of the parish priest there the coarse loose brown gown and twisted cord girdle the bare head and sandalled feet of the follower of saint francis of assisi following him closely comes a dominican friar in his white gown and black cloak while occasionally we may see a carthusian monk dressed entirely in white this square seems to be the great meeting-place for business men for there are always crowds of them standing about reading the newspapers smoking and talking while on the edge of the pavement close under the loggia dell'anzi as if to accentuate the contrast between medieval and modern times various stakeholders take up their position and sell papers and postcards also cooling drinks of various kinds from lemonade made on the spot from fresh lemons to the most sickly and insipid of syrups on fridays the square is thronged with countrymen who come in the early morning from the surrounding neighbourhood to talk over agricultural affairs and to transact any business which they may chance to have on hand these tuscan peasants present a very picturesque appearance especially in winter when they appear in fur caps and terracotta coats which however are going out of fashion as we sit on this quan of vantage we cannot help noticing that a constant stream of people comes up the steps towards us and disappears under the arched doorway of the palace at our back if we were to follow them we should find that although there are tourists amongst them who are bent on exploring the massive building the great majority pass through the beautiful courtyard of the palace without even taking time to glance at its fountain one of the treasures of florence which was wrought in bronze by verrocchio and presents a boy with a dolphin the fact is that this quiet little courtyard is used as a passage between the square and the via de leoni or the street of the lions 
so called from the lions that were kept in an enclosure nearby as a compliment to scotland and in memory of the scottish king william the lion who on one occasion interceded with the emperor charlemagne for the restoration to florence of her liberty recrossing the square and leaving it by the left-hand corner we enter the via calzaioli or the street of the hosiers which leads directly to the piazza del duomo and which is to-day as it has always been one of the busiest thoroughfares of the city as we traverse it we pass on our left one of the most interesting churches in florence the church of the trades guilds or san michele once a tiny little lombard church dedicated to the patron saints of the lombards and standing in a garden or orchard then transformed into a granary or corn market it gained for itself the curious appellation of san michele in orto from the latin hortus a garden or horeum a granary in the thirteenth century when it was still used as a corn market miracles began to be shown forth according to the historian giovanni venanni by a figure of saint mary painted on a pilaster of the loggia of san michele in orto the fame of these miracles spreading abroad pilgrims flocked from all parts of italy and the offerings which they brought soon accumulated to a very large sum this money was applied to building a beautiful shrine for the madonna the work being committed to andrea orcagna when his task was accomplished the work was so beautiful that the magistrates recognising that it was more fitting that the shrine should form part of a religious building rather than of a public market removed the corn market to another part of the city and the merchants who had become keenly interested in the matter were at liberty to erect the present church in which to deposit the shrine determined that the casket should be worthy of the jewel which it contained they made up their minds that not only should the inside of the church be as beautiful as they could make it with marble and carving and rich stained glass but that the outside should be beautiful as well so each of the great trades guilds offered to supply a statue to be placed in one of the vacant niches which had been built in the walls as we look up at these beautiful life-sized figures erected by the most famous florentine sculptures we realise that one of the most extraordinary things about this wonderful city is that priceless works of art can be left exposed as these are in the open street and that they are so cared for and reverenced by the people that it is possible for them to remain there century after century looking down on the stream of life which passes below them without being chipped and broken by stones aimed at them by schoolboy or vandal hands it is true that the most perfect of them all donatello's st george given by the guild of armourers has been removed to the national museum in the bargello but like the marzocco and michelangelo's david it was felt to be too precious to be left outside even in florence the interior of the church is somewhat dark owing to the fact that altars have been erected against most of the windows and in the gloom it is difficult to make an adequate study of orcagna's masterpiece which took him ten years to complete and is said to have cost eighty-six golden florins it has been spoken of as the most perfect example of gothic art in existence a little way farther on the via calzaioli merges into the piazza del duomo that world-famed square 
in which, when we visit it for the first time, we would be almost inclined to imagine ourselves in fairyland, were it not for the tram-cars which radiates from this centre to all parts of the city, and to the surrounding suburbs as well. For before us rise three buildings, all of which are coated with different coloured marbles, white, dark green and pink, making a picture which is almost startling in its brilliancy. These are the ancient octagonal church of San Giovanni Battista, once the cathedral, at all times the baptistery of Florence. The larger and more modern cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore, St. Mary of the Flower, which besides being coated with the three varieties of marble which I have mentioned, glitters with mosaics, and is crowned by a dome of rosy red, and, loveliest of all, the tall, slender campanile, or bell-tower, built by Giotto, which is so delicate in its beauty, so calm and fair and stately, that it has been compared to the lily of the Annunciation. The baptistry is the oldest building in Florence, and as it was built on the site of the Roman temple of Mars, it is probable that the stones of its walls, hidden under their coating of marble, are identical with those which were employed in the erection of the earlier building. This custom of covering stone walls with slabs of marble is peculiar to Italy, where this costly material is so easily obtained, and has probably been handed down from the days of the Etruscans, as the term used for this special kind of mosaic is Geroni, from an Etruscan word which means small pieces. Compared with the radiant freshness of the Duomo and Campanile, this curiously shaped church, with its worn metal dome, seems old and weather-beaten, but, in its three double gates, which stand on the north, south and east, it possesses treasures which are reckoned among the greatest trophies of art. For one of these gates was fashioned by the hands of Andrea Pisano, and the other two by Lorenzo Ghiberti, almost sixty years being spent by the two sculptors on their production. It was of the gates on the east, which face the Duomo, and are the work of Ghiberti, that Michelangelo said that they were worthy to be the gates of paradise. These, however, are always closed, and entrance must be sought by the north or south gate. At all times of the year, the interior of the baptistry is dark and cool, and it is very restful to pass out of the heat and glare of the piazzo into its dim light, and hushed, mysterious atmosphere. The windows are narrow, and placed high up in its walls, but they give us sufficient light to let us see the beautiful mosaics set in a background of gold with which the entire dome is encrusted, and the massive granite pillars and tessellated pavements of black and white marble, which is said to have suggested patterns to the silk weavers when they first settled in Florence in the beginning of the thirteenth century. But beautiful as the baptistry is in its form and ornamentation, its principal interest lies in the fact that all the infants born in Florence, from the days of Dante down to the present time, have been baptised here. The font that we see is old, but it is not that in which the poet and his Beatrice were baptised. That appears to have been a very curiously shaped font, having a large basin in the centre, suitable for immersion, and smaller basins round it. These outer basins must have been fairly large, however, for on Easter even, when the baptistry was crowded with citizens, all of whom were trying to light their tapers from the Easter candle, 
a little boy named Antonio de Cavicinoli fell into one of them, and would have been drowned had it not been for Dante, who, in his efforts to lift the child out, broke the basin altogether. Some years afterwards, when, in the castle of Malaspina, he was writing and perfecting his Inferno, he remembers this, and tells how, in his descent to the nether world, the rocks, all pierced with many a hole, remind him of those stones which in my beautiful St. John are found, where priests baptise each infant soul, whereof, not many years back, I broke one to save a child that lay a-drowning there. Unfortunately, the quaint old method of keeping the baptismal roll, dropping a black bean into a box for each boy that was baptised, and a white one for every girl, did not preserve the names of the newly christened children. Else the baptismal roll of San Giovanni, during the 13th and 14th centuries, would have been of intense interest. At any hour of the day, we may see a baby brought in to be baptised, but if we want really to realise what the dim old church stands for in the life of the people of Florence, we will come here on a Sunday afternoon, and watch baby after baby, each accompanied by its sponsors and a little group of friends and attendants, being brought to be received into Christ's church. For apparently Sunday is the christening day, and if we have patience to wait, we may see as many as twenty or thirty babies receive their names, and be received into the fold of Christ's church. They are baptised in the order in which they arrive, and each baby has a ceremony to itself. There is often quite a row of christening parties, some very poor, some apparently in a good social position, sitting side by side, waiting their turn. The infants who are brought from the poorest homes are generally the youngest, most of them being only a few days old, for the more ignorant Italians have still the dread that a child may go to limbo, rather than to the blessed Paradiso, should it chance to die unbaptized. Bound up with this belief is the superstition that witches may work havoc with an unchristened child, but that they dare not tamper with anyone who has been signed with the sign of the cross. So for both these reasons they bring their children to the baptistry as soon as they can be taken out of doors. It is amongst this class that the practice of swaddling children still lingers, and although most of the tiny things, swaddled or unswaddled, wear spotlessly white gowns, occasionally one sees a baby swathed from armholes to ankles in stiff corded material after the pattern of Andrea della Robbia's bambini, and carried a curiously stiff, motionless little object on a white cushion by its nurse or sponsor in the upper classes it is more customary to wait till the child is a fortnight or three weeks old thus making it possible for the mother to accompany it all the babies rich or poor are brought into church with a covering over their faces and here it would appear to most people the poorer children have the advantage for while the richer might seem to be in danger of being smothered by the coverings of corded silk or satin, heavily embroidered with the sacred monogram in gold, in which they are enveloped, their humbler little neighbours are allowed to breathe through muslin or net. Each service is gone through carefully and reverently, but naturally no time can be lost, especially when there is a crowd of babies. So two priests are engaged in the work, and take the services alternately. 
when one is filling up the certificate and necessary papers for the child he has just baptised the other is busy with a fresh comer however much opinions may differ as to the points of doctrine or ritual i think no one would be inclined to deny as they stand in this time-honoured spot hallowed by so many memories that there is much that is impressive in the symbols used by the roman church in this initial rite in the lighted candles held beside the baby by the assistant deacon as an emblem of the light of the gospel in the few grains of salt that are put into its tiny mouth as a sign of the life that is incorruptible in the laying of the end of the priest's stole across its breast as at a certain point of the service it is carried nearer the font as a sign that it wears christ's yoke and in the other lighted candle round which its tiny fingers are clasped after it has been duly baptized and anointed to typify the virtues of faith hope and charity which from henceforth ought to radiate from its life one of the most interesting ceremonies which takes place in the baptistry is that of blessing the font for the coming year on easter even and is performed by the archbishop when he and the clergy who accompany him have taken their places the font is filled with water which the archbishop signs with the sign of the cross thus dividing it into four a few drops of water from each division are then thrown to each point of the compass north south east and west after which the prelate breathes on the water and dipping the paschal candle into it three times invokes the holy spirit in these words may the power of the holy ghost descend into the fullness of this font thereafter the congregation is sprinkled with the newly blessed water and a few drops or two of the oils used in church services the oil of catechumens and the oil of chrism dropped into it the ceremony ending with appropriate prayers and a litany across the square from the baptistry is the duomo that rose-coloured mountain of marble which arnolfo planned giotto and andrea pisano contrived and brunelleschi crowned truly it is a magnificent cathedral second in size only to st peter's at rome but in spite of the sense of rest and quietness and space which its vast and somewhat bare interior gives it is i think its exterior with the life and movement which goes on around it which appeals more closely to most people for like st paul's cathedral in london the noise and stir of the city life surges up to its very doors and the life-sized figures in the beautiful mosaics set above the principal entrances look down tenderly on little children busy with their childish games at the corners of the broad stone steps that lead up to it on tired men and women who at midday find on the broad marble ledge running round the sacred building a resting-place where they may eat their frugal lunch or stretched face downwards sleep peacefully for half an hour or so and on pigeons which flutter up and down preening their feathers in the sun and feasting on crumbs thrown to them by tourists skirting the steps on the north and south run busy streets the starting-place for trams for all parts of the city and the clanging of the tramway bells and hooting of the curious horns carried and blown by the conductors mix and mingle with the cries of passing street vendors in one confused medley of sounds while in striking contrast the sweet-toned bells high up in giotto's campanile far above our heads 
ring out at stated hours summoning the faithful to mass or vespers or announcing to all the other churches that the hour of the angelus has come if one happens to be in florence at whitsuntide it is worth while ascertaining when the cresima or confirmation is to be held in the duomo and attending it very often this ceremony takes place on the evening of whitsunday when we enter we find that the vast church no longer looks dark and sombre for in the centre of the nave a vast oblong square has been railed off and an altar raised at the east end this square is filled by hundreds of tiny children most of them about the age of six or seven who have been brought in bands each under the care of a parish priest from the various parishes in florence and from the surrounding villages to receive the rite of confirmation which in the roman church takes place at an earlier period than it does in the anglican communion the children kneel facing the altar and as might be expected at their tender years are much more taken up with their white frocks and spotless suits for all parents even the poorest try to dress their little ones in white for the occasion than with the solemnity of the service in which they are about to take part they are restless too poor little mites and desperately afraid that they will lose the two necessary adjuncts to the ceremony which they have been well warned not to drop which they grasp tightly in their hot grubby hands these are a certificate of their fitness for confirmation signed by their priest who gave them what simple instruction was necessary and a little band of white silk ribbon long enough to tie round their heads with a little gold cross worked in the centre of it behind the children stand their parents and relations and behind them again tourists and sightseers among whom we must range ourselves presently the archbishop appears in front of the altar accompanied by attendant priests and after saying some prayers begins to move round among the kneeling children preceded by one priest and followed by another the priest who leads the way takes the certificate from a child glances at it and reads out the name the archbishop confirms the child and signs it on the forehead with the oil of chrism just as it was signed at its baptism he then gives it a tap on the cheek to show that it must endure suffering in the flesh and passes on to the next child while the second priest takes the silken band and binds it round the newly confirmed child's head arranging it so that the gold-wrought cross covers the cross that was traced in oil these bands must be worn by the children for three days to show that they are not ashamed of the cross of christ and thinking of the homes from which many of their wearers come we can imagine that they will be no longer white at the end of that period one would expect to find the little girls wearing veils for their cresima but this is not so veils being reserved for the first communion which takes place when they are twelve or thirteen at the north-west corner of the piazza del duomo just opposite the campanile stands a plain unpretending building which might be taken for offices of some sort it is however the headquarters of that most famous and unique society which for six hundred years has been closely connected with the history and character of the florentine people the misericordia or the society of the brothers of merciful hearts up till recently we met a little company of these brethren every now and then 
as we walked about the streets and if we had not heard about them previously we gazed at them in astonishment and wondered who they were for they were clad from head to foot in loose black cloaks and over their heads and faces were drawn curiously shaped black hoods so that they were quite unrecognisable there might be six eight or ten of them walking in procession two and two and generally the couple in front were wheeling between them a long black stretcher covered with black oilcloth as this strange mysterious company passed along all hats were raised by rich and poor alike and no wonder for the men whose identity was thus concealed were on their way to render help to some sick person or first aid to someone in an accident they carried with them all appliances suitable for the case food wine brandy spirits or bandages and they were prepared to take entire charge of any sick injured or dying person attending to them at home conveying them to a hospital or should they be past all human aid caring reverently for the dead body and if need be carrying it to church for the funeral service and afterwards burying it these charitable acts are still performed by the brothers of the order but the stretchers have given place to up-to-date ambulances funerals are always conducted in the evening and it is a picturesque and weird experience to meet a funeral procession when dusk has fallen as it suddenly emerges from some narrow chiasso or alley in front walks a priest repeating the de profundis and accompanied by acolytes bearing crucifix and torches then comes the bier carried by black-robed brothers of mercy accompanied by other brothers who walk on either side bearing flaming torches which light up the surrounding buildings with a lurid light friends and relatives follow some of whom also carry torches and in this manner they pass to some church where a service is held and the body rests all night to be buried next day either in the fashionable cemetery of san miniato or in the humbler god's acre at trespiano there is no respect of persons among the brethren of the misericordia its service is voluntary a free-will offering and men of all ranks belong to it from the humblest tradesman up through the professional and leisured classes to the king of italy himself it is this spirit of spontaneity and self-sacrifice that has always distinguished the order and it is because of it that the black gowns and hoods are worn to ensure that no member may be recognised as he goes on his errand of mercy and so obtain the praise of men in bygone days a certain number of brethren were always in attendance at headquarters taking the duty by turns and if any case of sickness or any accident occurred which necessitated more help being needed a signal was given from the summit of the campanile and no matter where the brethren who were liable to be called out for service that day were they were expected to leave their work or business or pleasure instantly and repair to headquarters where in a room lined with cupboards the dress of each member was kept nowadays only a few paid officials and one or two of the more leisured brethren remain on duty at the residence as the building in the piazza del duomo is called other members being summoned by a bell call in case of need but the same rule as to prompt attention to the summons obtains at night three brethren and two porters sleep on the premises 
This interesting society sprang from a very humble beginning. Its founder was a porter named Pietro Borsi, who lived in the 13th century, and was employed, along with a number of others, in carrying the bales of cloth sold at the annual cloth fairs, held in front of the Duomo, on the feasts of St. Jude and St. Martin. Finding that his companions had nothing better to do than to gamble in their spare time, and that when they were doing so, oaths were common, he suggested that for each blasphemous word a fine should be paid, and a litter bought with the proceeds, which the porters might use in turn to carry home the unfortunate victims, who might chance to be wounded in the street phrase which were so common at that time. So, from the brave suggestion of a street porter, sprang the Misericordia of Florence. The patron saint of the society is Saint Sebastian, and on the 20th of January, which is his festival, practically the whole city thronged to the little chapel of the society to do both saint and brethren honour. Having duly said their prayers, they sally forth again, and buy large supplies of the very special cakes which are baked for the occasion, and sold all day long from stalls erected in front of the residence. Looking across the Via Calzaoli, from where we stand, we see a beautiful little loggia, which, however, is closed by an iron grating, through which we can see a bas-relief of the Madonna and Child, attributed to Arnoldi, a pupil of Andrea Pisano, which for many centuries must have been exposed to the open air. This is the loggia of the Bigallo, another old and charitable institution, which has done much for the welfare of poor children. If we have only seen the loggia dell'Anzi, and this exquisite little loggia of the Bigallo, we may think that such buildings were erected in medieval times alone, when the streets were so foul and unclean that those who could afford to do so had these open galleries, if we may call them so, built in order that they might have some place to walk in and enjoy the air, apart from the vulgar crowd, and that today they are only to be regarded as survivals of the past. But this is quite a mistake. The loggia is a feature, and a very pleasant feature too, of present-day Florentine family life. We have only to ascend to the loggia of the Palazzo Vecchio to see the truth of this, for here we are above the city, and can look down on a vast expanse of dull red roofs, broken by intersecting streets, and by the silver ribbon of the Arno. And as we do so, we become aware that a great part of the domestic life of the people, especially of the poorer districts, is lived on the housetops, for almost every house has its roof lodger, often very humble and homely, just a roof supported by four plaster pillars, and a low wall to prevent children falling over the edge. Many of these lodgers serve the purpose of roof gardens as well, for flower-boxes are numerous, and vines, rambler-roses and wistaria are trained over the low walls or up against the side of a higher house. Here we see a busy housewife hanging out the clothes to dry. There a cooking-stove has been erected, and the mother of the family is occupied with culinary arrangements, while one or two brown-faced children and a long-legged, rough-haired puppy are tumbling over one another at her feet. In a roof lodger, a few streets away, a woman sits by her sleeping child, busy at a pile of sewing, and a bird-cage hangs on a pillar above her head. 
the more fortunate people who have gardens have their lodges built against their garden walls and often they have these built sufficiently high up to allow them to look over the wall if they wish to do so and down into the streets below so when one is passing through some narrow lane shut in on either side by high uninteresting stone barriers one may hear merry voices above one's head and looking up may see behind the nodding roses or spray of fragrant lilac that peer over the trellis at the top the eager faces of daintily dressed children anxious to get a glimpse of the turisti inglesi End of chapter three